The reading tonight is from Proverbs 1, starting at uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Yeah. Um, that's on page 635 of the Church Bibles. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance, for understanding pro proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. This is the word of the Lord. Theresa May needs wisdom in delivering Brexit, whatever form it might take. Gareth Southgate needed wisdom to select the right team to get us so far as uh, he did. And that referee in the final today needed wisdom. He needed to, in deciding that... Uh, a handball was a penalty, uh, a game changer, really. And he's, what he's doing is he's drawing upon his knowledge of the game. He is adding to it ex his experience. If you've played the game, you know whether an action looks natural or unnatural. You know if somebody is trying it on or whether somebody isn't. And uh, then, with the knowledge and the experience... You exercise wisdom, good judgment. And we need that in our ordinary lives. We all have uh, limited resources of time and money. We all have limited opportunities for friendship or work. And we need wisdom in managing and making decisions if we're not to end up with foolish decisions from which we're likely to suffer from. We certainly need wisdom if we're asked for advice from friends or family. Many of you who are, who are younger, you'll need advice and uh, information, guidance and wisdom in choosing a course at the university or a career choice and training for that. You'll need wisdom in choosing a life partner. You'll need wisdom in choosing where to live and where to go to church. So we're beginning this little series on the book of Proverbs and uh, this little video clip lasts eight minutes and it tells us what Proverbs is all about. It tells us what wisdom is about. Take a look at it. The book of Proverbs. The word proverb typically refers to a short, clever saying that offers some kind of wisdom, and this book has a lot of those. But they're almost all in the center section of the book, chapters 10 to 29. But there is way more going on in the book of Proverbs, especially at the beginning, chapters 1 through 9, and the conclusion, chapters 30 and 31. The book's been designed with an introduction, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and it first of all links this book to King Solomon. Now remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon had asked God for wisdom to lead Israel well. 
And so Solomon became known as the wisest man in the ancient world. And we're told in 1 Kings chapter 4 that he wrote thousands of proverbs and poems and collected knowledge about plants and animals. So Solomon was like the fountainhead of Israel's wisdom literature. So while not all the material in this book is written by him personally, he is where Israel's wisdom tradition began. The introduction says that by reading this book, you too can gain wisdom. Now wisdom for most of us means knowledge, but the Hebrew word chokhmah means much more than just mental activity. It refers to action also. So think skill or applied knowledge. This is why back in the book of Exodus chapter 31, it was artists and craftsmen in Israel who were said to have chokhmah. So the purpose of this book is to help you develop a set of practical skills for living well in God's world. And this gets linked with another key idea in the introduction, the fear of the Lord. Now fear here is not about terror. It's about a healthy sense of reverence and awe for God and about my place in the universe. It's a moral mindset that recognizes I am not God and that I don't get to make up my own definitions of good and evil and right and wrong. Rather, I need to humble myself before God and embrace God's definition of right and wrong, even when that's inconvenient for me. Now this introduction leads us into the first main section of the book, chapters 1 through 9, which also doesn't contain short one-liner proverbs. Rather, what we find here are 10 speeches from a father to a son about how the son should listen to wisdom and cultivate the fear of the Lord and live accordingly, which means a life of virtue and integrity and generosity, all of which lead to success and peace. And the father warns his son also about folly and evil and stupid decisions that will breed selfishness and pride, all leading to ruin and shame. And so the son should make the pursuit of wisdom and the fear of the Lord his highest goal in life. And this way of thinking, it forms the moral logic of this entire book. Now these speeches from the father also clue us into what biblical wisdom literature is and how it's different from other parts of the Bible. These books explore how to live well in God's world, but wisdom is not the same as law, like what Moses gave Israel at Mount Sinai. And it's not the same as prophecy, divine speech to God's people. Rather, wisdom literature has the accumulated insight of God's people through the generations about how to live in a way that honors God and others. And so, through the book of Proverbs now, these human words about wisdom have been put together as God's word and wisdom to his people, which connects to the other thing you find in chapters one through nine. There are four poems from Lady Wisdom. Here, wisdom has been poetically personified as a woman who calls out to humanity to pay attention and to seek her. Wisdom says that she is woven into the fabric of the universe. And so wherever you see people making wise decisions, they are relying on her. So you see someone being generous or having sexual integrity or upholding justice. They are drawing on wisdom. These Lady Wisdom poems, they're a creative, poetic way of exploring this idea that we live in God's moral universe and that goodness and justice are objective realities that we ignore to our own peril. And so fearing the Lord, living wisely, it's living along the grain of the universe. 
Now together, these two sets of speeches from the Father and Lady Wisdom, they make a powerful claim about this book, that you're not simply reading good advice, you're reading God's own invitation to learn wisdom from previous generations. And so in the next section of the book, chapters 10 through 29, we find hundreds of ancient proverbs and they apply wisdom and the fear of the Lord to every life topic you could imagine. Family, work, neighborhood, friendship, sex, marriage, money, anger, forgiveness, alcohol, debt, everything. And these are all filtered through the value system of Proverbs 1 through 9. Now these Proverbs, they're all pretty short, they're easy to memorize, and actually this section of the book is meant to become a reference work that you return to time and time again throughout the years, which raises some important issues in learning how to read these Proverbs. First of all, Proverbs are by nature about probabilities. So you fear the Lord and you make wise, good choices, things will likely go well for you. And if you don't fear the Lord, you're foolish, your life will likely not go so well. Now, that is all often true, but not always. Which leads to the next point, that Proverbs are not promises. They're not formulas for success. So, some Proverbs, for example. The fear of the Lord prolongs your life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Or, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't turn from it. So yes, fearing God, being a moral person, will most likely lead to a better, longer life, and raising your kids in a stable, loving home does set them up well, but there are no guarantees. Lots of things can and often do go wrong in our world. And so lastly, Proverbs by nature focus on the general rule, but not the exceptions, which are many. And the wisdom books actually aren't ignorant of that. The exceptions are what the other wisdom books, Job and Ecclesiastes, are all about. And together, these acknowledge that life is too complex for simple formulas, which is why we need all of the wisdom books together to get the bigger picture. This all leads to the final section of the book, two large collections of poems. First, poems from a man named Agur, who begins by acknowledging his own ignorance and folly and his great need for God's wisdom. And then Agur discovers that divine wisdom has been given to him in the scriptures, which teach him how to live well. And so Agur is put before us as like a model reader of the book of Proverbs, somebody who's always open to hearing God's wisdom through the scriptures. The final poems are connected to a man named Lemuel. He's a non-Israelite king, and he passes on the wisdom that was given to him by his mom. It's guidance for being a wise and just leader. And then the final poem is an acrostic or an alphabet poem where each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the entire poem is about the woman of noble character. It depicts a woman who lives according to the wisdom of Proverbs and stands like a model of someone who takes God's wisdom and then translates it into practical decisions in everyday life, at work or at home, in her family and in her community. So the book opened with words from a father to a son about listening to Lady Wisdom, and so now the book closes by offering the words of a mother to her son about a woman who lives wisely. The book of Proverbs is for every person in every season of life. It's a guide for living wisely and well in God's good world. And that's what the book of Proverbs is all about. Well, I don't know if it surprised you that uh, Lemuel 
um, was a non-Israelite, and yet what he uh, had written down, what he'd learnt off his mum, gets included in the Israelite Bible. Well, that's only the beginning. There are two or three chapters of Proverbs which are basically nicked off of other countries. Because, you see, each country would have their own college for training their civil servants. And uh, in Egypt, there was the instruction of Amenemope, who wrote in around about 1250. And what he wrote and what's included in Proverbs have such numerous and striking parallels that a conservative commentator, Derek Kidner, concludes, the points of contact are too many and too close to be a matter of coincidence. Now, that shouldn't actually be surprising because we believe as Christians in general revelation, common grace, common sense, which is accessible to any human being. It's the way we're wired up. But we also believe in special revelation and saving grace, which can only be known if God reveals those plans and purposes of his to us, which he's done in scripture through history, recorded, and when we are illuminated, when we kind of see it, it all becomes ours for the taking. So, for example, the Assyrians, who were a dominant force around the seven and eight hundreds BC, they adopted some of the wisdom of the Israelites, which the Israelites had in fact got off of the Egyptians quite a few hundred years before. But while the ancient Near Eastern texts reveal that their people may have made accurate observations about life, they also reveal that those people lacked any sense of certainty about the knowledge of God. In this Sumerian prayer, this, that, that, that kingdom was about 2000 BC, reveals that. The writer says, I wish I knew that these things were pleasing to one's God. He doesn't know. He's having to go by his own gut instincts. He doesn't have any revelation other than that creation requires a creator, a creator and that his guilty conscience requires some kind of atonement because he knows he's somehow in the wrong with this creator. Now, the Israelites, by contrast, had, in fact, the benefit of clear divine revelation, and that left them in no doubt what did and didn't please their God. The ancient uh, Near Eastern kingdoms and their gods lacked any kind of personal dimension. The Israelites had a personal name for God. It's Yahweh. And they knew through the way in which he interacted with them, they grew to know his character, what he was like. And they began, as he invited them to be his people, to be in a relationship with him, the purpose of which was that his character should be reflected in their lives. Well, if you want to uh, follow, we're actually now at um, point six. And um, to understand the Proverbs well, we have to get a good grasp of who some of these character types are and what function they serve in the book. And the most obvious characters in the book are the wise, the fool, 
and the simple. And you can be any of those things at any age. Now, Proverbs urges its readers to be wise. That is, to embrace God's covenant, his offer of a relationship with them, and then to learn the skill of living out the covenant in everyday situations. And the wise person is the person who has done that. And his example is worth following, we're told. The wise follow the maker's instructions. Then there's the fool. He's the person who is rather steadily and persistently opposed to God's offer of a relationship, a covenant. We read, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now the setting of Proverbs assumes that you can have fools amongst the people of God in the church, in other words. And this kind of person resists even the offer of forgiveness found in the covenant. So in Proverbs we read, fools mock at the guilt offering, the offering which would cover their sins and make atonement. The fool is a dangerous person in their influence, we read in Proverbs. The companion of the fool will suffer harm. The fool will also cause grief to their parents. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. But they're not beyond hope, 8.5. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. So that's the, the wise and the foolish. And then there is the person who is the simple person. He's the person who is not firmly committed either to wisdom or to folly. He is easily misled. His trouble is that he does not apply himself to the discipline needed to gain and grow in wisdom. The Proverbs also use other terms, both positive and negative. Positive terms are things like righteous, upright, diligent, understanding, prudent. And negative ones are like wicked, lazy, lacking in sense. Now they're not different groups of people from the wise, the foolish and the simple. They are what's termed co-referential. In other words, you have those people and what you're doing is looking at them from different perspectives, different points of reference. So the righteous is the one who's embraced the covenant, seen from the perspective of his faithfulness to God's will. The wise is the same person, seen from the perspective of his skill in living out God's will. And the prudent is also the same person, seen as one who carefully plans out his obedience. And likewise, the wicked is the one who rejects God's covenant, seen from the angle of his opposition to God. And the fool is the same person, seen from the angle of his stupid course of life that he's chosen and suffers from. So the co-referential use of these terms helps us discern the many sides of fruit, uh, many-sided fruit of godliness and ungodliness. Also, these characters are kind of idealised portraits. That is, they denote p- 
people who are exemplary in their virtue and wisdom and who are especially despicable in the kind of wicked and evil things they get up to. They are, if you like, caricatures, portraits of people with features exaggerated for easy identification. The positive figures serve as ideals for the faithful to guide their conduct and character formation. The negative figures are exaggerated portraits of those who do not embrace a relationship with God. And so the faithful can recognise those things, those traits, and avoid them. In fact, to flee from them, to don't go anywhere near them, to not entertain them. There are also gradations. In other words, some people are worse than others. So the scoffer, who's mentioned quite a bit in Proverbs, is worse than the fool, because the scoffer is against wisdom, rather than like the fool, merely kind of indifferent, undecided, drifting around, incapable of deciding anything. The scoffer acts, we read, with arrogant pride. And then there's the person who is wise in his own eyes. Now, he's almost beyond hope because he is too proud to learn. He's unteachable. And being unteachable is the greatest sin in Proverbs. The simple, he's not as far gone as the fool since he is a floater, since he's a rather set um, in his, he's a, yes, he's a floater rather than set in his ways. Now all of these are what the Old Testament calls the uncircumcised in heart and what the New Testament calls unregenerate. They aren't born again. They haven't kind of entered into that relationship with God. And just to close then, we look at the text, which is really just defining what words are. So we have in verse 2, for the gaining of wisdom and instruction. Wisdom, as we've seen, is the skill in the art of godly living. And it is a skill. And um, it can get better over time. We learn from our mistakes. Instruction is disciplined, is being corrected and learning from those mistakes. In military terms, it would be boot camp, designed to get you up to a standard that is expected. Now, lots of people don't like that kind of thought. But nothing useful is achieved without hard work and learning from setbacks for understanding words of insight. Insight means discernment. It means being able to suss out what life is about and how to live it. Verse 3, for receiving instruction in prudent behaviour. Prudent means wise dealings with people. Then we read, doing what is right and just and fair. Those three words denote God's standard of morality, of justice, and of complete even-handedness in dealings. Verse 4, for giving prudence to those who are simple. Prudence is shrewdness. Knowledge and discretion to the young. Knowledge is knowledge of the truth and particularly of God himself and his character and his purposes. Discretion is about purpose and direction, 
about plans. And most people, at whatever age we are in life, need to take that on board because there is often a desperate need for direction and purpose in many who are otherwise just drifting along, perhaps anaesthetized to uh, what life is really all about. Verse 5, let the wise listen and add to their learning. Learning is finding out about life, about why we're here, about what it's all about. It's about beliefs as well as behavior. And the stress is on being given or revealed to us, to be received and to be grasped. Then we become wise. It's about knowing the character and the person of God and copying him. And let discerning get and let the discerning get guidance. Guidance is counsel. And the getting of good advice in a church like ours is freely available. We shouldn't be kind of dependent upon people. We should have to make our own decisions, but there's no harm in in when we are kind of faced with a decision and we need some uh, we need more information or we need the kind of insight from someone who has been there, done it, been through it. It's a wise person who goes and uh, asks them, okay, this is my situation, what would you do? And there's bucket loads of that available if you look around. Verse 6, for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise, that's what the book is about. And finally, the strap line of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now sometimes it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom, as it is in Proverbs 9.10 and Psalm 111.10. But of course, knowledge and wisdom belong together. Knowledge precedes wisdom, but both depend upon the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is about reverence towards God. You see, why be bothered if God is kind of personified as somebody, well, probably not even personified, just as a kind of um, being so remote and distant and uninvolved with us that you doubt he's ever going to do anything anyway? You can maybe even conceive of him as some kind of benign old duffer. You're not going to pay any attention to that kind of God. And that kind of God is not going to kind of have any kind of leverage on us on how we should behave. In extremists, you could think of people who, well, if you take, um, if you take, you know, if you were watching Croatia, I mean, next to Croatia is Serbia and Bosnia-Herzegovina. And 20 years ago, people did the most appalling things to each other there. They did things like rape, pillage, murder of the most horrific kind. And if you don't believe that there is a God, or he's a God who is ineffectual, then basically you can get away with anything, because basically no one's going to stop you. No one's going to do anything. But what would the innocent say if there was a God and he did do nothing about such appalling things? Or you may just simply be the familiar Western self-centered life. 
when even the good that we do manage to do has subconsciously been designed by us to deliver affection, affirmation and ego massaging. You see, if there is no God, we may as well do literally what the hell we like and the innocent who suffer from our behaviour can forget that there ever will be justice for them. Paddy Ashdown was once uh, the UN High Representative for Bosnia-Herzegovina 20 years ago at the time of the Balkan Troubles. And Croatia is um, to the north and west of Bosnia-Herzegovina and Serbia is to the east. And they are a mixture of Orthodox, Muslim and Catholic. And uh, Paddy Ashdown witnessed appalling scenes in breach of the Geneva Convention. And he went to uh, Serbia to see President Milosevic, who was behind all that was going on. And he told him what he'd witnessed, and he gave him relevant passages from the Geneva Convention in the presence of the British ambassador. So Milosevic could, and I quote from Ashdown, no longer claim to have no knowledge of what was happening or its implications and could therefore end up being held responsible for those actions before the court in The Hague. Ashdown continues in his autobiography, the next time I saw Milosevic, which was in The Hague, where he was on trial for war crimes, when I gave evidence about the events I had witnessed, I reminded him of this conversation with the words, I warned you, Mr. President, the last time we met, that this is where you could end up, and here you are. Milosevic died in custody. Well, God has warned us, like Milosevic, that we will be held to account one day for the life that we have been given. In the meantime, though, he is gracious to us in his offer. He invites fools drifting along in their alternative lifestyle. He invites the simple who just don't realise that they've got to opt for one way or the other. And he's invited the scoffers to wise up, to fear him so that they will find him and in finding him they will repent and obey him so as to get to know him and to allow themselves to be trained and transformed so that they will live like him. God is in charge. He calls the shots. He is the God of justice and he holds all to account. Knowing that is very wise to revere him, to even use the word fear him, to have due deference to him for the adverse consequences of being in the wrong with him. For there are just two outcomes, eternal life or eternal punishment, and we get to choose which it will be in line with God now, or out of line forever. Let's pray. Before I pray, just one or two proverbs for you to reflect on, which will encourage us in the right direction. Proverbs 23, 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There is surely a future and a hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Or 12.28, in the path of righteousness is life, 
and in its pathway there is no death. Or 11.23, the desire of the righteous ends only in good, the expectation of the wicked in wrath. Grant us, Lord, the wisdom and the grace to use aright the time that is left to us here on earth. Lead us to repent of our sins, the evil we have done and the good we have not done, and strengthen us to follow the steps of your Son in the way that leads to the fullness of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.